Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 43, Deuteronomy chapters 8 through 11. Moshe points out something that, if possible to achieve in my house, would truly be a miracle. In the 40 years of wandering, quote, your garment did not wear out from upon you, nor did your foot swell. Which means that in addition to all the other miracles witnessed and experienced by the Jews, they didn't have to do laundry. And then, when you add to that all the military successes to come, the possession of the land of Canaan, all the material comforts and plenty that come with it, Moshe warns the Jews, Be careful that you don't let, quote, your heart become haughty and you forget Adonai, your God, the one who brought you out from the land of Egypt from a house of serfs. Because you don't need a soothsayer or prophet to tell you what will happen next. Chapter 9 reminds us about the impending challenges, the sons of Anak, the giants who will array themselves against you, and how they will all be defeated, and how, then, you will be tempted to take credit for all the victories and successes and bumper crops and, and, and. In other words, when hubris sets in, remember, quote, Not because of your righteous marriage, or because of the uprightness of your heart, are you entering to possess their land? but rather because of the wickedness of these nations is Adonai your God dispossessing them from before you, and in order that he might uphold the word that Adonai swore to your fathers, to Avraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, you are to know that not because of your righteous merit is Adonai your God giving you this good land to possess, for a people hard of neck are you. Got that? It's not because you are worthy or good but more because the indigenous peoples are bad, and God, like the Lannisters, always pays his debts. And then Moshe recounts all the stupid decisions and reprehensible behaviors, and the list is long. I'll spare you. And even into chapter 10, we're still talking about all the bad Jews, or at least the ungrateful Jews. Moshe is still rolling and roiling. Quote, And now, O Israel, what does Adonai your God ask of you except to hold Adonai your God in all, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your being, to keep the commandments of Adonai and his laws which I command you today, to have it go well for you? Here, Adonai your gods are the heavens and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is on it. Only to your fathers was Adonai attached, to love them. So he chose their seed after them, you, above all, other, peoples, as, is, this, very, day, so circumcise the foreskin of your heart, your neck you are not to keep hard any more, for Adonai your God, he is the God of gods and the lords of lords, the God great, powerful, and awe-inspiring. But here's the interesting twist. What does Moshe demand of the Jews to fix things? What does it mean to, quote, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and soften your stiff neck? Take no bribes. Provide justice for the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the stranger. Feed them when they are hungry. Clothe them when they are exposed, because you were vulnerable and enslaved in Egypt. Remember Egypt? Remember how you got out of there? 
And chapter 11 continues with the Remember Wins, with the splitting of the sea, with all the miracles, the uprisings of Datananaviram, the Rubenites, the Rubes, Rubanians, and, and how the earth swallowed them up, etc., etc., etc. But it also lays out what will happen if you do follow the commandments. And the list is long and good. And the formula is so clearly delineated that it became a critical second paragraph of the Shema prayer. And it will be physically represented when they cross over the Jordan and stand on two mountains, where the one, Grizim, is the mountain of blessing, and Eval, the mountain of the curse. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. I'd like to talk about what one hopes is a curious and evocative metaphor. I'm referring to the circumcision of the heart. So normally when we talk of circumcision or brit milah, the two-word phrase is often shortened simply to brit or bris. And then most folks register brit as the snip-snip itself, when in fact the, it's the milah that refers to the part of the pee-pee that... <laughs> brit means covenant or contract, and it's a bit more confusing as the part that's cut off is known as the orla. So when you look back to our portion, which says, Umaltem et orlat levavchem, it scans as, quote, and you should circumcise the foreskin of your heart. The foreskin, or orla, is arguably an example of human vestigiality. That is, it's an organ that has lost all or most of its original function through evolution, as if a foreskin had an evolutionary function. <laughs> Imagine trying to teach about Brit Mila in middle school. Anywho, don't Google that, by the way, on Google Images. The thing about vestigiality is that although the organ or behavior appears functionless, it had one and actually might have a function that we're not aware of or provide the basis for a future new function. Who knows? Probably the best-known example of vestigiality is the appendix. The vermiform appendix used to have digestive functions and perhaps plays a role in maintaining the gut's bacterial flora, but today it is synonymous with a postscript. It's an afterthought. But there's also uh, the tailbone and wisdom teeth and the inside corner of the eye and, and goosebumps and palmar grasp reflex. That's when you put your finger or, or a pencil or whatever in the palm of a baby and the baby grabs it. There used to be a reason why we needed these organs or behaviors. Goosebumps would raise the body's hair, making you appear larger and scarier. Raising the hair also traps an extra layer of air, keeping you warm, except that we don't have that much hair to really make a difference in size or air capture, unless you're Hugh Jackman in Wolverine. So, yeah. The foreskin, I suppose, could fall into this category. It is a part of the human body that we could easily do without. Countless millions of Jewish and Muslim men across the millennia have lived perfectly decent and productive lives without a foreskin. Although, folks would argue that the same argument would apply to the pinky as well, and anti-circumcision activists would argue that the orla is not vestigial, as it has a function. 
humorous functions. <laughs> so, removing the Orla has a different religious purpose, and as I have mentioned before, and though there is some dispute about this, a Brit Milah probably does no harm to the circumcised male in the long term. In fact, there are some slight benefits, but I'm not going to get into that. And I've been to many a breed and enjoyed many a post-snip bagel with whitefish salad, and at one time I even sidled up to the Mohel and asked him about what he does with the Orla after, and I experienced a part of the tour I really didn't need to see. But anyway, the baby boy seemed to be okay, and there wasn't too much blood, and there was food, so when I hear of circumcision, that's what I think about. And then I encounter this image and you should circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And when I think of that, all I think about is blood. A lot of blood. And I am not a medical doctor, but I was paying some attention in grade 4 when we learned about the circulatory system. And if memory serves, there really isn't a part of the heart that I could remove, not even a little bit, without causing a major malfunction, which would probably result in death. But since the text considers this move to be necessary, and ultimately beneficial, and part of a general softening and correct acting. And since there's no actual orlat halev, it is thankfully just a metaphor. One that we have encountered before in Leviticus chapter 26, and will encounter again in Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 4 and 9. But a metaphor for what exactly? For restraining our passion for worldly delights? For being able to accept criticism and rebuke? for removing obstructing tissue that prevents us from receiving God's word, for reversing the pernicious cholesterol buildup from eating too much fried quail, which got me to thinking about the other Orla. <laughs> no, not that one. I'm actually referring to an altogether different Orla, the one connected to fruit. Leviticus 19 Verses 23 and 24. Now when you enter the land, and plant any kind of tree for eating, you are to regard its fruit, like, a foreskin, a foreskin. For three years it is to be considered foreskin for you, you are not to eat, it, and in the fourth year shall all its fruit be a holy portion, for, jubilation for Adonai. This practice of leaving a tree for three years with its fruit unpicked is pretty sound agriculturally, but why call that fruit, that necessary and untouched crop, an orla? Is it really superfluous, concealing beneath it an item of importance? Does it obstruct anything? If anything, it is essential for the health of the tree, and it conceals nothing as the orla fruit does not overshadow or muscle out permitted fruit on the branch and it definitely doesn't obstruct growth, but actually encourages it in the future. Despite the negative connotations associated with the arelim, the uncircumcised, and by extension the orla itself, the orla is necessary, and a necessary step. It sets the stage for the ultimate fruition, and its removal is the penultimate step for that fruition. Whatever that fruition may be. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or quement at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, 
Or feel free to leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 44 on the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 12 through 15. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah?